Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. Today, Laszlo Tomsvall joins me, and we discuss an obscure Hungarian vampire film, his Kickstarter, Pod People, and everything in between. We go into some uncharted waters, but we land the boat back into port safely. Links are in the show notes. The hive mind is trying to take over the world. There's no time to rest. Sisters and brothers, it is time to get rambling. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Uh, you reached out to me with a, a very nice press kit. I'm very professionally done. Thank you. <laughs> a level of professionalism I hope to aspire to. I love that. I'm, I'm glad my uh, email. <laughs> I just tried to get the enthusiasm across, and I think that carries it a long way. Oh, yeah, I think it does. And I think also, I mean, it, you know, for, for me, I just somebody says, hey, can I come on? I'm, I'm sure, like, sure. But, you know, when you're wanting to set up a kit to have people uh, take notice, especially, uh, you know, other people, it, it, it makes sense to have a something professional that states exactly what your project is and who you are and, and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah, and I think really, you know, to try and be professional, uh, it really does a lot of times pay off to to do those things. Um, and I think it's a simple thing to do, but it's a thing that most of us don't do. Uh, it's it's a weird space because it's a hobby space. So I think I include myself in it. A lot of us do it not as our main job, but it's meant to be a joyful uh hobby but hopefully a professional hobby but still so it's a weird balance to hit like i try to be professional but you also want to make sure it still leans towards the fun end of the scale right 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 you're not you're not submitting this to some major publishing house uh a lot of this stuff but you may be putting out to people who may be uh, maybe um, people who have uh, bookstores or, or um, maybe small distributors or, or whatever, or, or podcasters, I guess, too. So, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because I was talking to, I bumped into uh, Lou from Exalted Funeral, and he stated, because I mentioned in the podcast about how he mentioned, I can't remember if I talked about this specifically, but he says that people... Like, if you go to Exalted Funeral and, and you write to them and you want them to carry your books, you should send an, he said, the, you should have an email with a small paragraph describing your project um, and then also uh, attach a, a link to a PDF. Because what he says normally happens is somebody will write and say, hey, uh, do you carry, you know, would you, would you consider, you know, carrying any of my zines? And they're like, sure. You know, like, what have you got? And they would write back, like, oh, I got some fantasy and some science fiction. <laughs> okay. Well, so what, can you tell me a little bit more? I mean, so they don't want to have to draw out information, you know, for what you've done. You present all the information that somebody wants. They can glance at it. And, uh, and I think whenever you're trying to get somebody to do something, like for all of us, it, it pays to take a little bit of time and, and present uh, information in a tidy way. I I run a, a very very small press that uh, we published a couple of 
uh, illustrated prose books. And I'm shocked by the number of submissions I get that are just, you could feel that it has no connection to what I do. It's just somebody carpet emailing right. publishers. And there's truly not a bigger turnoff than receiving one of these uh, messages that don't connect to what you do. And I feel like that is probably what I pride myself in the most. Like I would never do that. I only, like I only reach out to podcasts that I actually listen to and enjoy. And I sort of understand that what I do would be a match. And I listen to a lot of podcasts that I really love. And I'm like, well, I, what I do has nothing to do with it. So I will leave them alone. And I try to curate who I bother. So thank you for uh, letting me bother you and oh, yes. having me on your show. Well, I really appreciate people bothering me because, um, as I mentioned before, it's a whole lot less energy for somebody to ask to be on my podcast than it is for me to go find people to ask to be on my podcast. So, uh, and um, and I do have a list of people uh, that I am wanting to have on, but it makes it so much easier when somebody says, "Hey, can I come on? I got this project." It's like, sure, <laughs> it's makes it so much easier. So, yeah, you got it. So, strangers from nowhere is the is your is there is your press is your company name. Yes. It seemed like a good idea when I came up with it. <laughs> so so what, what, what prompted, I mean, what prompted Strangers from Nowhere? Well, the very first book we published was a, a book I translated from Hungarian. And it was, so this is a, a two-second story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It's a little bit offshoot, but it's, it's kind of intriguing. So the very first vamp uh, Dracula movie ever made was a Hungarian silent film made in 1921 called Dracula's Death. And it predated Nosferatu. It was very, it's, it was really the first recorded movie where Dracula appeared, but the movie is lost and only a novelization from that era survived. So I translated that novelization into English and I wanted to present it uh, as like my first project as a publisher. So at the time I was really doing a ton of research into silent movies and horror movies that are lost. And I have it in my office on the shelf somewhere. I bought this giant book of like, nothing but lost silent films, uh, horror films in particular. And I was just flipping through and there was one French movie called Strangers from Nowhere. And it, that one was the first that sounded like something. It sounded like a company, it sounded cool to my ears. So that's how I landed on it. That's neat. So, so... I mean, this is very, very, like, very niche. I mean, like, you know, so so why would you pick to to novelize a novel, or why would you take to translate a novelization of a of a science film that is no longer extant? Oh yeah, it is. I mean, it is definitely niche, niche, and that's why I didn't even bother publishers. Although I think some 
uh, some uh, university places might have been interested in because it was more from like an academia point of view. So it's it's more of a forgotten slice of horror history that's like some film studies or uh, enthusiasts of that horror history would appreciate. And you would be shocked as I did my research, I was a little bit disappointed because nobody told me when I was a kid that it's an option, but there are actual like vampire researchers who do that for a living, teach in universities, teach really? vampires. Yeah, so there's a, a surprisingly, it's a niche, but it's a sizable audience for these overtly specific type of publications. Well, I also suppose this silent film, since it predates, is actually, you know, would be the inspiration. I mean, if you kind of go through, you know, maybe not everything carries over, but it definitely plays an inspiration for things that happened afterwards, probably undoubtedly. Is that is that the thought? Uh, in general, that's one of the things I find most exciting about studying horror history. Like a great example is David Dracula, is that in popular culture, Dracula is uh, burns in the sunlight, and that is very specifically an invention of the Nosferatu movie, almost 50 years after the novel was published. And it has like a, a lasting ripple effect. We are here over 100 years after the movie came out, and it's still what is sort of added to the lore yeah, it's become like a can, like, like an agreed upon canon about a fictional creature. Oh, absolutely, yes, for sure. And what was interesting about Dracula's death is that it was a, a very unsuccessful movie for historical reasons and many, many reasons. So it, it made no splash, it didn't influence anyone, but it was also not influenced by anyone. So if you examine it, it, it has like a lot of, it feels almost like an alternative universe. Like what would the vampire lore look like if it was successful? Like Dracula turns into an owl at one point instead of a bat. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense because it's a nighttime animal has big eyes. It looks creepy and it's just, but it didn't become part of the lore. So it wasn't, it didn't stick, but it could have. Well, I think to animals, you know, we have certain associations with animals with different cultures at different times had maybe different associations of animals. You know, so maybe, you know, one society thinks, you know, owls are wisdom and other people may think they're like a harbinger of doom. So, I mean, it's like, you know, there may be symbology tied in with it that we have, you know, lose by not being, you know, in that particular culture. Oh, definitely. And that's that's the kind of stuff that I assume vampire scholars talk about. Like, it's yeah. this is the deep dive you can do if you're uh, into that kind of stuff. So if you didn't had known that, that you could make a living researching vampires, would that have changed your uh, career trajectory if you knew this at an earlier age or younger well, age? Probably not specifically for vampires, but... 
I think when you're a kid, you have very limited ideas of what jobs look like. Yeah. So <laughs> if I knew that uh, higher education can get like laser focused on things that I love, I probably would have pursued something similar. Well, and I think also, I mean, the, you know, none of us could foresee the internet. We could not foresee you know, the, I, I mean, the, all the things that it brought with it that makes, you know, if, if back in the day, you know, if I wanted to publish an RPG product, it is a very expensive process of, you know, either I type it up myself and then Xerox it, or I send somebody to get it typeset and laid out in typeset and then make a print run, all very expensive, and that's very expensive, where now I can, you know, produce something and, and just print exactly what I need and, be able to ship it right to a customer. I mean, that was inconceivable, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s. Oh, definitely. I I love the print-on-demand technology, how much it changed even in the last 10 years. Uh, to me, like, I know if publishers who level up have to do it, and I'm, I'm sure it's re rewarding. My personal nightmare is one day a truck pulling up to my house and dropping off two pallets of books that I printed somewhere. And then, you know, that's when you find a typo and you're like, oh no. Uh, so I love print on demand. I think it really made it possible for the, even just the RPG hobby to thrive into this like zine direction. It, it would have been really difficult to do with that traditional printing? Yeah, it would, it would have taken much more money up front and without really a good distribution model would have been, it, it just would have been very difficult. And, um, you know, I think, you know, people's plans back in the day was print a bunch of, I mean, going back to like the 70s and 80s was, you know, print a bunch of books and then go to Gen Con and, and see if you can sell them and hope you can sell them all. <laughs> so like, and that, that'd be your, your seed, you know, for future work. Uh, but, uh, but now it's, uh, it's quite crazy. So you also have Dracula's death, but you also have the vampire or detective brand's greatest case on your yes. website too. Yes. And that is a project that was brought to me as a publisher. And that was one of the projects where the people actually paid attention to what I was publishing. So it wasn't one of these carpet emails. And that is, uh, so I, I got, uh, I got to have great conversations with a scholar who was one of the first uh, people in English to really explore Dracula's death. So I sent him my book after I published it because I was really proud of it. It has a lot of actual research and I discovered some things that were previously forgotten. So I wanted to share it and he really loved it. And he brought me this idea that he just discovered in, a, in an archive the very first American vampire novel ever written. It's been out of print for 150 years. It predates Dracula. It was one of these uh, dime novels. So we brought it back, brought it back to print. It's 
it can be read now for the first time. Again, it's also very niche, but uh, for that one, I was a publisher only, but it was really great to put it together. I have my beginnings in independent comics. So I learned how to work with artists and I was able to recruit great artwork for both of these books. And that's sort of the, the, the really enjoyable part of being a publisher is figuring out what would match. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not always easy finding. You can find great artists, but they may not be doing the things that you need them to do. And it's, it's, it's not always, sorry, finding a match is always, a, or can be a challenge. I also learned, and this is not rational, this is something I would probably have to get over at one point, but it is great to find artists who do excellent work, but you, because it's still a hobby in a sense, or it's still like a passion project, you want to work with people who are also excited to work on it. And it's, it's disheartening when you work with somebody who, it feels like it's a, just paid work. Like you, you want to find that good balance to pay your artist a really fair wage. So if they post about it online, you wouldn't be embarrassed how much you paid them. But also have, I, I'm lucky to have this personal relationship with artists where I can reach out and we became friends over the years and I can hopefully funnel some work for them, but I know that they also are excited to work on weird horror stuff instead of some corporate comic about safely safely lifting boxes, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're right, because I think I've, I found an artist, too, who's willing to come down on his price, uh, mainly because it, it was different than what he normally does, and he was excited about it. But you're right, there is that kind of trade-off, uh, and I think whether you're dealing with People who, you know, what I've found is sometimes there's um, certain artists kind of get shared around in the in the um, in the community, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it's, you know, it's trying to determine if you want to differentiate or not. And, you know, I mean, sometimes uh, you're, and you're right. We all, we all want people to be excited about what they're what what they're doing because we're excited about our projects. And I think it does shine through, you know, if people have excitement or they're just as they'd say, calling it, phoning it in. Oh, for sure. And that, that's why, that's, even as somebody who is like a, a consumer, so even on the consumer end of it, like that, sometimes it's not even tangible, you can't really tell why, but certain projects feel not cynical, and there's nothing wrong with making a book to advance your living or make career, there's, there's an extremely legitimate reason to write certain right. type of books, but you still feel a little bit like cheated, I think, when that when your uh, spider senses tingle about it. So back in the, I think it would have been the late 80s, I went to a Comic-Con in Chicago, and uh, there was uh, Howard Chaikin, a uh, comic book artist who had the first issue of the Suicide Squad, and he did the cover. And so then I, when I went to have him sign, I was talking to him, and he was like, 
I asked him about something about the interior of the comic. He's like, I don't know. I never, I didn't read it. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> it's just kind of like, it, it just like, it was like a header I couldn't imagine. So, you know, I look at the cover and it's like, it's, there's nothing really that great about the cover. I mean, he was commissioned to a cover. He did a cover. And, uh, and I, and a lot of times with comic books, I don't know. So it's, same for more modern, but back in the day, sometimes they, they didn't match what's going on in the story. I'm, I'm sure sometimes uh, there wasn't even a story yet when the art was, yeah, yeah, was uh, commissioned. Like, yeah. And so it's like, I, you could, I could tell from Howard's response uh, that, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but, you know, that's what, you know, that's what, uh, you know, that's what pays the bills. You know, and he has comics that his own stuff that he probably loves, and and but but his art really, I mean, I, and the artwork wasn't that, you know, I don't want to be belaboring, but you know, like, but you could tell there wasn't a lot of love necessarily put into that cover either. So, um, but you know, he got paid. I used to have you ever been to Dragon Con? Oh, no, Atlanta? no, I mean, it's a really fantastic convention, and for a couple of years, I volunteered on their uh. Walk of Fame, so it was not the artists, but it was more like actors from horror movies and science fiction series and uh, web series. And it's all like, usually it's like between science fiction and role-playing game-related celebrities. And it was really interesting to see once the fans officially left the room and it was just us volunteers, you could see who was really there to other than of, of course everybody's there to make uh, a living that i love conventions for allowing these beloved actors to support themselves i do know it's an important part of their income but you could tell who was there to also connect with their fans and who was like the smile was like turned off like a switch and it was get the <laughs> hell out of here you know and that, that also is a little bit disheartening yeah, I, I, yeah, and, and, you know, it could be, you know, and to be fair, it's like they may feel a little trapped, you know, like they're drained, they need the income, you know, it's not necessarily that they're being greedy, but they just may need to pay the house, they may have to pay the insurance, they may need to, you know, get the kids through, the grandkids through college or whatever it may be, you know, and uh, yeah, I, but I know I understand what you're saying, it's, 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 um, you, you, you kind of hope everybody shares that same enthusiasm, but um, but maybe they don't. And I, I think I should say that the vast majority of those people were genuinely kind and excited to be there. So that's why I think the the one or two that wasn't really stood out, and I think that's why it stung a little bit more. It yeah. wasn't the normal, luckily. Well, and I think probably a lot of people, it's like, you know... I think maybe people don't want to necessarily play the same role the rest of their lives, but I think having people love a character that they did is probably is can be very flattering, and I'm sure there's a, a certain amount of joy that some people find that, and other people may just be as I can't stand crowds of people, <laughs> and I'm all my emotion, all my my spoons are used up. I am emotionally wrung out with dealing with the masses, but but there's other people that get energized and probably can you know that love it and share put that energy back into the people that they're greeting. Oh, definitely. Have you been, do you go to game hall con? 
No, where is that? So it's in Madison. Um, so in Madison, it's a. Uh, so, so do you go to many uh, game conventions? Uh, no, mostly because we've been sort of moving around. I did. I did go to C two E two a couple of times up in Chicago. Uh, we have a local convention here, and uh, I lived in Florida for over a decade, and uh, the annual pilgrimage to Dragon Con was the big one because it's, yeah, so close. it's a really grown-up oriented convention, so it's uh, it's great when you're well, younger than I am now, but you want to party with your friends and then go listen to Pinhead from Hellraiser at 2 a.m. talk about his experiences, you know. It's oh, a very 24-7. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. Right, because I think that a lot of these actors, too, it's, it's kind of funny. I imagine how we have preconceptions of who they are and what they're like, but then when you actually hear them talk, their experiences are like, oh, yeah, it's like <laughs> he's a normal person. And, and hearing what he went through to go through that and the makeup or whatnot, or, and that is very fascinating. And they get really protective of the character they grew to love and play so much. I do think you're right. There's probably a lot of people might resent initially that they've been typecast, but I think it turns around to, like not a lot of actors can be associated with a beloved franchise or character, and it must mean something, you know? Yeah, and not to not to pick on like William Shatner, but I mean he went on to make multiple TV appearances, multiple movies, you know, all these commercial, you know, those convention appearances probably, you know, helped him. But he really, you know, probably was as enthused as probably some of the other people who who maybe didn't have that opportunity to have as much success later on in life. Yeah, and it's fair too. Like I, I'm not expecting. Everybody to, like, almost hard for me to imagine being an actor because it it does feel like you're, initially, at least when you start out, your input to what you appear in seems to be extremely limited. So it's almost just a draw of luck to be cast as a captain of a science fiction series that will have longevity, or are you just... Casting around, like, are you going to play doctor? Do you care about medicine? Probably not, you know? So it feels like you have very little control over that aspect of your work if you're an actor. Yeah, it's just a lot of luck. And, like, who would have thought? Because really, Star Trek really wasn't that successful when it came out, the, the original series. You know, and it wasn't until they went through all the, um, uh, what do they call that? Where they would sell to, to TV stations real cheap. The, oh, yeah, uh, the reruns and the... Yeah, uh, and, and then it started growing in popularity, and then, you know, things just started. It wasn't until, you know, a decade later before it started to really crank up. So it's it seems like something kind of a little more than incidental, but something that seems kind of small at the time, and then later on, the you know, the the, 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 the with the movies and all that kind of stuff, it really, it really became something much more. But, you know, that was just... They could have easily just not have happened too. It's just it's it's interesting how I'm sure there's a probably a feeling of luck that you know 
is stuff that happened outside their control, but it's still, they did the job of presenting characters in a way that connected with people. Oh, it, in retrospect, the uh, implication is still sort of the high mark of like imagining a good future, you know, where like people didn't see race and uh, it was truly like sort of what a goal would be for uh, mankind to come together and like we solved the issues on earth and let's look at the stars. Like that idea had such an impact and I think that's what gave it longevity. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's that, and I think to me also, I think that that things don't have to that that situations don't necessarily have to be believable, but the characters have to be believable. Like they can be a, a goofy Vulcan, a crazy doctor, and a you know, and a doc and a, and a starship captain. So many things don't make sense, but when I watched it, I believe they were who they said they were, and there's something that transcends to me that, that that relationship of who they were was believable emotionally, you know what I'm saying? Not necessarily intellectually. Like, why is Captain Kirk always going down the planet? That makes no sense. I mean, you, we can go through all the logic of, of things that just don't make sense in that movie, uh, but yet it feels, but it, the people, all the cast, it feels real. And that is why you keep watching it, because you... It is like in a good way, like a soap opera, like it's a lot of character drama and what you love seeing them grow. And like, it's definitely that aspect is pretty strong too. And I also always love that some of these TV shows, they kind of taught me as a writer, like not every scenario has to be spectacular uh, in scale or in action. And it's, Star Trek did a great job of like just presenting ideas almost like, oh, here's a society where they don't like blue eyes. Or I don't I just said something yeah. dumb. I'm sorry, but like when they do these sort of like just almost a mundane dilemma but you can unfold it and you can sort of solve this issue and there's not a lot of Sometimes when they're jumping around and the creatures came, that's when the show didn't quite age well, I guess. But all these, like, intellectual little episodes, I think, still pretty great. Well, they were able to take, the, the science fiction, in a way, they were able to take a social issue and, and I think, present it in a way that distances it from being the real world. And it allows people to look at it without immediately having... Uh, the same visceral reactions as it was this world. So if it was, you know, like exploring racism, they were able to explore it in, in a different way that didn't necessarily probably feel threatening to people, but that allowed them to see it, to view it from a different angle and reflect on, you know, like, okay, I see where they're going with this. I understand. And I think that makes it a lot more digestible to present social issues in a way that people are more accepting of, at least you know, looking at, if not accepting. Oh, yeah, and uh, a similar theme, but The Twilight Zone was a show that did the same sort of thing, but much more heavy-handed. Like, you couldn't watch Twilight Zone and not realize that, oh, yeah, it's 
probably about examining racist feelings, you know? Right. And, uh, but that's also like great that it made it to, into people's living rooms. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and it's, you know, kind of, in a way, the, the, and that's where I think a lot of social things from both directions, I think, because I think, you know, it seems like both sides of, of the aisle can a lot of times be very lambastic. Uh, and this, I think the, the proper use of fiction or through role playing is a way kind of people are presenting their views and their ideas in a way that allows people to kind of view it and play around with it and look at it without really uh, having to argue or, you know, I mean, it's. I think it, it provides good venues to express these types of thoughts and and to share those with other people. I couldn't agree more. I do think uh, I'm very lucky. I was brought up to really value art and literature, and uh, my parents were very much encouraging us to always keep up with art. And I, I do think that. Uh, and I consider like creating role playing games like not in not in a pretentious way, but I do think it's like that creative spark is there, and it's. Uh, I do think it really reflects the subconscious and human condition, and you can definitely learn a lot about yourself if you look at role playing games and such too. So. I don't know if I made sense, but it made sense in my head. So no, it let's does. pretend like it made sense. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there are role-playing games that have tried to emulate certain time periods in history or things that people go through. Um, there are some role-playing games that help people explore feelings. There's also some, there's people like LARPing, uh, the guy from Scandinavia, they do crazy LARPs, like, you know, like emulating real-world events, you know, um, or, or scenarios that are just very desperate, and there are highly charged emotional situations that a lot of people share in, which I don't find this appealing, but I find it very fascinating, you know. Uh, that is pretty, pretty interesting, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it is. And so I think, you know, you know, you know, starting, I don't want to say, you know, maybe the origins isn't exactly right, but say starting with the idea of pushing miniatures around, rolling dice with Arneson and, and Gary Gygax, um, it's kind of exploded and merged and morphed into so many different things that I don't think we really know how far it has gone or or will go with uh, respects to what it can be used for and what people can use uh, role-playing games to do. I love, and this I don't know, like, I, I do still remember when I was a young kid and I first sort of understood what role-playing games are or what they do. It Just to really be in charge of entertainment in that sense was really revolutionary. And I don't think any other form of entertainment ever comes close enough to really letting your imagination run wild in that sense. So I'm really interested in to see how, like what you said, like how far would it go, or what other shapes it might take in the future. 
So, so I guess the question is: So, when did you come to to the U.S.? Yeah, so I came to the States in two thousand one. I was nineteen. So I grew up in Hungary. Uh, so I was a, a real child of the nineties. That was my uh, formative years uh, when I was a teenager, and then I I started. Uh, gaming pretty much in like I was maybe 10, 11 when we really dove into it uh, and uh, that was like a, a real decade of really deep obsession with role playing games it was probably the most important thing in my life for those years So what did you play in Hungary? Uh, so, initially we started out playing, there was only one Hungarian game at the time. So it was a very simple sword and sorcery type fantasy game. And we were approaching gaming from, I don't think they were as popular in the United States, but the, have you heard of the fighting fantasy, yes. your own path games or books? And those were extremely popular, and that was our gateway into role-playing games. And for the first few years, we almost just had to make up these games we played, because we most of the books we got our hands on were in English. None of us really spoke English, so it was a lot of dictionaries and trying to look at character sheets and reverse engineering rules to make it make sense. But then uh, eventually we caught up and I never really got into D&D. &D. Uh, strangely enough, because it even in the 90s, it felt like it was a game of a generation before me. It didn't feel mine. It almost felt like going back to look at something. And at 12, 13, it didn't appeal to me. But we really got into Call of Cthulhu, Shadowrun, these sort of games. And I think around 94, 95, I discovered Vampire the Masquerade. And so that's you, just. So you were buying these, they were English, and then you had to translate them? Is that. Yes, and you're trying to just. <laughs> I mean, we, I was learning English as a second language in yeah. school. And I almost every year I almost failed. I had to like beg the teachers to keep me from repeating the whole class. So it was really just whatever we could. I had friends who knew a little bit more than I did, but it was a lot of squinting at the page and sort of seeing some rules. Well, it's <laughs> some rules on the page. It takes a lot of drive to not be a native speaker and be new at English and to take role-playing game rules and try and understand them. Because some of them are just difficult, even when you know the language, let alone <laughs> trying to uh, do the translation. Yes, and, and eventually they were, luckily they got published in Hungarian as well. So those games always took precedent. Like we had a Middle Earth game that None of us really liked the rules, but it was in Hungarian, so I was like, okay, let's 
Was it the Roadmaster uh, rules? Uh, I'm actually not even sure because I, I'm not sure what they were called in English. Did they not... use a percentile for the... It was a lot of charts. It was a lot of, I think it was... Miller just imagine plan, a probably. book full of charts and that, yes. that's what we had. And I just... So the, so the, the base system is called Rollmaster and the nickname is Chart Master. <laughs> yes, 100%, <laughs> yes. So we were blessed with the Chart Master again early on. <laughs> Yes, but Vampire the Masquerade was, we were talking about certain games or entertainment reflecting the times. I, nothing tangible, but I recognized that that game was for my generation. Like I was the target audience. I was like an art kid. I was into industrial music. I had long hair. I was... I opened that book and I was like, oh, this is about, not literally, but it was about me and my friends. We were all gothy. And it really connected in a really, almost in retrospect, charmingly embarrassing way, but I was really into it. It really felt like it was made today for us. Well, yeah. I think it's fascinating because you, you mentioned about D&D, like being not for your generation, it's it's not was, I don't know if it's not for you, but it's kind of interesting because that's the way I felt about uh, Vampire more than any other game. In that it's like there's a group of people this really appeals to, but it's not for me. Not that I you know denigrated it, but it, it is kind of interesting how, and I never really thought about it till now how they're you know, either generational or regionally, there's certain things that click very much emotionally with people. So I think probably being a child of, you know, I grew up, it was a lot of the Cold War. Um, so in the 90s was the end of the Cold War, but there was also the, uh, but there's also a lot of social angst going on as well. And it was a different form of angst and, 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 and uh, troubles. I think we kind of come to those RPGs in different ways to kind of deal with the troubles that we're going through. Oh, probably. And uh, to me, Vampire the Masquerade, really, or any of the Road of Darkness uh, books, I, I love all of them to this day, but I don't think I could play them anymore. They feel over its time, like as current day were back then, it, now it feels really dated to me. Uh, and this is not judging the games. I, I know there are a lot of people still really enjoy them, but have you seen the What We Do in the Shadows? Uh, no, but I need to. <laughs> it's really funny, but it's a, it's almost like a, a riff on that, like vampires living in a real world, and it's yeah. like, who's doing the dishes, guys? You know, like, <laughs> uh, and uh, ever since I saw that, I'm like, oh, I, I can never play vampire again, because to me, living with other vampires would be that. Like, you know, like, these bones are kind of piling up in your room. Like, we have guests over, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the thing, too, I mean, I, you know, I think in many ways uh, Vampire was a very important game because it, it actually changed the way I think people thought about RPGs, and it expanded it in a way that made it much more, I think like for like, I know a lot of women would play vampire and it really opened up. I think in a lot of ways we don't write, I, as far as me being, you know, a man of a certain age, it's like 
and don't necessarily see all those barriers. But then when you start to see it from the other side, you're like, wow, there are a lot of, you know, barriers to entry for people. But Vampire was a way it opened up to a lot of people who um, it never would have probably played RPGs otherwise. Oh, definitely. It's funny, like, uh, my wife who grew up in Florida, uh, the only RPG she owned when we uh, got married was Vampire the Masquerade. Like, that was the only one that she played in high school. Yeah, and I think people have probably, as far as a role-playing aspect, is, is a lot richer. I think there's a lot more richer experience than it is for the rest of us who are playing Champions or D&D or whatever, Traveler. I mean, the idea really was to get into character, I think, as much as you know, reasonably possible and to kind of live out what it means to be whatever that creature is. And that, that is still my preferred vibe, which I, it's funny, I never really connected it before you just articulated it, but I can, now looking back, I, I still, because I always loved that when somebody was able to get uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, we didn't have to relearn the rules, it was very simple and it right. translated through different games. And I'm still drawn to this, like, really rules-light uh, approach. And the funny thing is either that I, I'm also... I have a lot of respect for... We made fun of the Chartmaster thing, but I also love how nerdy some games get, and you almost you feel like an accountant yes. writing down numbers. And I, I do see <laughs> the draw to it, honestly. I don't really play those games but i it warms my heart that those games are out there and people yeah there's games for accounts and, and there's yeah. game for angsty teenagers i mean we all have you know those areas that we can go in and enjoy yes and i uh that's honestly what fished me back into the hobby uh we're sort of doing the i'm sure it's exciting for everyone to listen to my personal journey with uh, role-playing games over the decades. But uh, so when I moved to the States, I, I didn't speak English still. So I had to learn everything once I was here. And I actually met gamers very early on. And that's when I was sort of faced with the talk that people are still playing d and in America. I don't know why in 2001, two, I was like, oh, okay, what are you playing? And they were playing D, and then I was like, what happened? Like, did you miss everything that happened since, <laughs> you know? And uh, I, of, of course, I learned that it's just a different point of view. And is now I yeah. understand that D and will always be present. And I just sort of nailed that slice of era where it wasn't that important and also we never really had access to the rule books i think i should probably mention that that i wasn't like too good for the end it was just, nobody we got advanced dungeons and dragons where it was like loose pages photocopy and it might have been in german too which is like an additional level of difficulty right we, we spoke a little bit of english but nobody really 
nailed German enough to play. But yeah, so it, it I had a real anxiety of gaming with initially with like a broken English or even when I became fluent, I still have a pretty noticeable accent and I used to be really socially anxious about it. So it, it was hard to come back to the hobby and really the when I discovered the zine culture, when I was like, oh no, there's a lot of groups that play these strange, almost like mini games that I, I felt like, oh, this is my way back in. I can see myself not being awkward doing it, you know? Yeah, I think this definitely has definitely opened up a lot of avenues and and especially since it, it allows uh, you know people uh, everyday people to have a large larger reach it does create a i think a much healthier ecosystem of of all these things going on by all these different creators i i truly feel like sort of the role playing game world is it does the closest to what i think every medium or genre in the internet age should be doing, and I'm sure it, everything is doing it to a certain degree, which is to be extremely diverse and niche and but also popular and, and like it has so much variety and you can like we, we talked about like there's the accounting games and then there's the games with no rules and there's a game you can play by yourself and just how like it is truly something that can only survive in the age of the internet where we can go and connect. And also Kickstarter has a lot to do with it because it's not only the internet, you don't have to go to a million forums to find these oh, things. Yeah. There's a marketplace. It's it's I'm not sure how it happened, but Kickstarter truly became the marketplace for role-playing games, even giant million dollar projects show up on Kickstarter. A lot of people have a lot of feelings about it, uh, but I understand why, because it, it is technically to fund your projects, but that's where people go to buy role-playing games. That's at least the first market. And uh, I think it did wonders to the hobby that there's a place you can go and you find everything. Oh yeah, it, it, I, I think both for small publisher for me, people like you and myself, uh, I consider micro publishers. Uh, we're, we're smaller than a small yeah. publisher. <laughs> we're <laughs> to, one one man band, you know. Yeah, you know, to all the way to these large publishers, there is so there is. If it wasn't for Kickstarter, there would be a lot less variety because. There's a because Kickstarter allows, especially even larger companies, to take risks. Uh, well, it mitigates a lot of the risks, so they can they can pitch a project if nobody wants it to, to hit a certain number. You know, some people say, well, but they know they're going to fund. Well, whatever. But still, the fact of the matter is, uh, they can throw something out there, and they have the cash to be able to to pay for it rather than speculate. And um, that's a hard thing, you know. 
you know, like you're, you got a Kickstarter going. It's like, you know, if you were to be a regular publisher back in the day, you'd say, okay, I guess I got to order a thousand copies. I don't know. But now you know exactly how many copies you need to order to, to meet demand plus whatever you want for safety stock. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of safety in that. Oh, definitely. And uh, part of me, because I did start publishing and before that I, I ran a web comic for a couple of years I, I was doing and that was all just, like I was always reasonably confident in doing the actual book. I was always very happy with like what I was quote unquote selling. I was never, uh, I never did anything that I, I wasn't really passionate about, but the finding the audience part is just such a brutal step to take. And even if I just look at Kickstarter, I could do the exact same game or book in the old way, like I can just pay for the art and advertise and try to sell the book. But even if I just look at it as pre-sale, I think even a lot of mid-size indie publishers don't do pre-sale numbers that we do on Kickstarter. Even if you sell a couple hundred copies, the reality is that that's actually a pretty great number of books to sell before you publish the book. Right. And that I feel like that's a, a real game changer for being able to dive in. Oh yeah, that, that's that's for sure. And I, I know that I never would have gotten involved uh, with publishing if it wasn't for for Kickstarter. So there's there's absolutely no way. Would there have been no way to really easily for me to market? I mean, I think I think if you were, yeah, especially the, the small stuff. Yeah, I think it'd have been very difficult unless unless you're wanting to go to conventions after convention after convention. Uh, there's probably no real way of of justifying publishing without Kickstarter for most of us. And I'm, I, I haven't. I'm not like a, a. I don't have a huge history of publishing or uh, putting my work out professionally into the world. But even in the ten years I've been in it, I, I think the most valuable lesson I learned is to constantly keep re-examining what you do as far as your business model. And I've never been an, an early adapter to anything, but I, I learned that if you're in the publishing game, you have to be, because when I started with the webcomics, the, the model was to have your webcomic and you were trying to get like banner advertising for your right. website, uh, a truly horrendous, luckily a relic of an era that hopefully will forever stay in the past. <laughs> a, a really atrocious job. And then after that, your the market moved to Facebook, and it was wonderful. And by the time I figured it out, Facebook changed the algorithm, and I had to pay to reach the people who were following you. And then now... Kickstarter is wonderful and crowdfunding is wonderful, but I will 
never tie myself to one way of doing things. I know a lot of artists were really carving a, a living and a reach out of the convention circuit. And COVID just completely disseminated their livelihood for several years. And hopefully, as it was happening, they were already looking what else, what other channels do I have? Oh, that's for that sure. Sounded, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're, you're right. It, 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 you can't rely on one thing, and especially this day and age where things change so quickly. And within a couple of years, you know, maybe Kickstarter will be disrupted and maybe we'll have to go some other direction. My biggest fear is that I, as a, as a creator, that I keep chasing goals that are not relevant anymore. Uh, as far as like finding advertisers for your banners uh, at the age of Facebook or still peddling Facebook where everything else moved to Kickstarter. And yes, definitely, uh, I'm, I love the option we have right now, but I, I tell my friends like, uh, uh, being a creative is like, you just have to keep swimming. Like you, you don't have time to really take a breath. You just have to, it's a, it's an upstream swim and you just have to keep going forward because you can't be stuck looking at some rocks on the shore because you'll be carried out, you know? Well, I think it goes back to, like, you know, like, um, it's like Twitter um, was a great source for finding, communicating with freelancers. Like, amazing, absolutely amazing. And then, you know, with with Elon Musk, he just single-handedly just destroyed a viable means of, of people finding clients and clients finding freelancers like almost overnight like it's it you know you know from from weird stuff like that you can't foresee to even like you know with videos you know now short videos like it, it pays to have like youtube channels and things like that but you know now you have uh you know the uh, tiktok and now facebook reels and youtube shorts and instagram and all these you know, multimedia or the the um, social medias that you need to be out there promoting your stuff, but it it keeps changing. It becomes it keeps it's fragmenting, and and you only have so much time in in a day or in a week or in a year, and it's hard to to know the path. Oh, definitely, and uh, I think a, a really great example of like being too invested in one specific path is like uh i followed a lot of like bookstagram like bookie book instagram like people who were real influencers and they had like a huge audience and i just saw how devastated they were when tiktok took over that space but there were a couple that sort of looked at it not as the rock being pulled from under their feet 
but they looked at it as a place where their audience moved. And following your audience is a better way to look at it than uh, following a trend or, or trying to find a new cool, cool thing, you know? Well, and, I think the other thing is, like, and it could be your audience isn't going to certain places. Like, I think for TikTok, you know, or like, let's say Twitter or, or let's say YouTube, you know, long-form videos are not going to appeal to a 20-year-old on YouTube. But but if older people enjoy it, even your audience isn't necessarily going to it's not a problem. But but if but if you wanted to reach younger people, you you better be paying attention where young people are going. I am shocked how little I understand young people. Like <laughs> and I don't I don't feel old in general, but uh my fifteen year old nephew stayed with us for the summer just for vacation. And it was the oddest thing because he were he was watching two types of entertainment. Never move like we did watch movies, but it was like almost a boring middle ground. He loved watching TikTok, which is like seven to twenty second loops of entertainment. And he also watched ten hours of some Twitch streaming of just a guy talking about something for hours and hours on Twitch. And it was just constant, and both at the same time, these two things were just running, and I was like, I don't get either of these, but it's really fascinating, you know? Oh, yeah, and I'm sure, you know, the previous generations looked at us as well, um, wondering how, but I I agree with you. They, they have grown up with media. The media has also, I think, you know, TikTok and whatever they've 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 got it down to the ways to keep people involved and engaged as much as possible. So I think early on they've already they're in sync with that much more than we are. And uh and it's definitely uh, a different world for them and how they consume and what they consume. You know, for me I spent my summers just, you know, bored and running around town, you know, kicking over logs, finding bugs. But uh I didn't have YouTube to watch videos of or, or, or Twitch. I was, with, I, I grew up without the internet. I know in the States, a lot of people had uh, internet in the 90s, but in Hungary, we, I had some friends, but I remember the internet being a really boring place. I remember going to a friend's house after 10 p.m. when the phone bills were less and you could go dial up. And I remember trying to go onto David Bowie's website to look at tour dates or something, and it just loaded forever. And when it finally loaded up, it was just a bunch of empty squares with an X in the middle. <laughs> and I was like, this is boring. What is this? Uh, but I was glued to MTV. Like, I was like, I didn't need the internet because I was just watching music videos 24 7. I went home, it stayed on. There were three music channels, and I was just constantly flipping from one to the other in an endless loop of... So that is kind of like TikTok and a lot of these others. It's just, it's been distilled down from, from three minutes down to, you know, 30, 30 seconds. Second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. So, you, yeah, 
probably talk about your your uh, your project. So you got a, a RPG zine called Pod People. Yes. Uh, so this is my newest project. Um, I really wanted to dive into like the anything can happen. Like you could make really interesting ideas on, on this small scale when you do zines. So I, I wanted to dissect a couple of ideas. And the basic premise is that pod people is sort of a take on the body snatcher alien invasion genre of science fiction movies. The most obvious is invasion of the body snatchers, but it was equally inspired by John Carpenter's The Thing, my personal childhood favorite, the lesser known entry in the genre is Invaders from Mars. It's had a huge impact on my life. Uh, Faculty is another movie in the same feeling. And uh, Pot People is trying to Imagine what this scenario would feel like from the space organism's point of view. And that's what got me excited to try to solve this puzzle of how, how to play a character that is actually not a character you are, for all practical reasons, you're a fungus. You know, you're like some space mushroom that just grows and when you replicate people, that's when the consciousness comes in. And that's when you're almost that's when you become self-aware and you're not really a character. You're somebody who copies a character. And I wanted to see what, how can I turn it into a game that has rules and you can actually play it. It's not just a thought exercise. Yeah. So yeah, looking through this, so you, so the system, I would have, I'm kind of surprised. So you, this is the system here is uh, two main mechanics. So is this a new system that you created for this game, or is this a mechanic that's been borrowed from something else? Oh, it's a custom created mechanic for this game, and the that is sort of what I really like about doing these very small, very small games, I mean like for volume, like a 24, 30 page game. And it's uh, uh, that if you create one of these like classic role-playing games, uh, these 300 page books that you sort of have to create rules to simulate the reality of the, the world that the game takes place in. So you have to account for, in a way, like the physics, but how do combat work? How does combat work or skills and luck and magic or space travel? All these things you have to create rules to simulate. And of course, when you design rules, you know that the rules you focus on inform the player what to focus on when they play the game. So I really wanted to create a game that 
really the only rules in it are just this almost the social aspect of being a body snatcher because that's what I wanted the players to focus on. So it's a custom system, but it's so specific. It only does one thing. So I don't want to sound like I, I invented the whole system. It's just a rule set for to be one specific thing, and that's all. Well, I think that makes sense because, I mean, you know, a lot of systems, especially, you know, branching out from like 70s and 80s, tried to, like you said, try to, you know, maybe create the physics for a world. But it seems like a lot of systems now, um, a lot of people are trying to uh, emulate genre without really physics and the feel. So, and the idea is you can custom make a, an experience. So I think what you're doing is saying, I want to experience this role play game offers an experience. So you're not going to be hunting down uh, monsters with this. You're not going to be trading uh, commodities in space. Um, you're going to play a pod person. Yes, and it, it's meant to take place in our contemporary world, like these uh, science fiction movies that I'm playing homage to. And so that already eliminates some of the world building you have to do. And uh, I'm trying not to make the games feel too abstract. So I tend to make it sort of weirder than it is really, but I'm trying to really make it clear in the game that you're playing a hive mind. You're playing a, a creature that, like, you don't even have a sense of self-preservation because all these pot people are not real people. They're not really have wants and needs, their needs are the spreading of the creature. One of this, the exciting things is that all the players play the same space organism, just different pods, just different doppelgangers that grew out of it, but the individual creatures don't really need to worry about surviving. And on top of it, you can only replicate people who are alive. And your main goal is not to be found out. So you're, you really have to adjust your uh, approach when you play it and not inhabit the character so much as to lose track of like the underlying drive of just spreading through society without being detected. Right. So, uh, looks like you've, so this is your, your first day. I think you you started yesterday. Is that what you said? Yes. We are just a little bit over 24 hours in. How am I doing? <laughs> Look, I don't $1,406. You're at 140% of your stretch goal or not your stretch goal, but of your goal. So I love it. Yeah, it's 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 speculation, and it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to know how it's going to go uh, when you do something new. So, so the these backers, uh, where do they come from? Do you know? Well, I this is my second Kickstarter, so I know some of them came from my previous game, which was a journaling horror game and 
Uh, a lot of those people also signed up for my newsletter, which is a bi-weekly newsletter. I sort of discovered that it's, it's almost like writing a blog, but you email it to people instead of right. expecting people to go find it somewhere. And that actually, I had a, a really great retaining uh, numbers on my newsletter. Like a few people left after signing up compared to how many people from my Kickstarter joined. So I do think that those two things sort of helped me have like a, a good first day. And I also am tinkering with on an extremely limited budget, but I am tinkering with Facebook ads. I did find that that if you can fine tune the audience, uh, it can work magic. The problem is that you have to be so specific because Facebook is not a person. They don't really know what you want. They will do what they think you want. And that's sometimes not at all what you are trying to achieve. I don't know if it meets, I don't know if you ever played with Facebook ads, but. Oh yeah, no, it's, I've never, except for the last one, I, I pretty much have always broke even. So no matter how much money I've spent, I've gotten at least that many people backing a project. Oh, that's great. Like as far as ads go? Or yeah, so if I spent, if I spent like, for instance, the uh, Scoundrels of Brixton, I spent $500 on Facebook ads, and I got about $500 from people. I think I spent, uh, I think for Gary's Appendix 3, I dropped it for this one. I think I spent about $180, and I got maybe $140 from those people. But I think there could be additional people. Just like I'm going to flip the light. Of course. So that's just people who, who have uh, directly clicked the ad and bought something. So if somebody, I think, went and clicked the, you know, uh, the, um, the following button, I don't know if it counts those people. Well, it also is... Yeah, I'm actually not sure. Uh, if you use like a custom tag for it, you can probably track who's well, you coming can tr from where. Well, the thing is, it it tracks them when they go to order, but if they if they do a follow, and then later on they respond to an email that's saying, "Yeah, I'm following this project. You have you know forty hours left." Oh, I see. I don't yes. know that, they, that those people are. I don't think. So I guess my point is, is I've always at least broke even. I could have actually done better than that. I just didn't do worse than that. Yes, I'm, I had reasonable success. I, I don't, I think it definitely helps bring the project in front of eyes. And also it's one of the few things that's within our reach that you can sort of do again, like Twitter, I would never put money into it now like to advertise on Twitter or right. nothing really worked, but I learned to like also not rely on the Facebook ads because they're, they are so hit or miss. Like sometimes it works, but sometimes like just to give uh, you an example, what I mean by Facebook doing what you think it wants you to do is a, uh, you know, you can sort of like, what do you want? Do you want engagement? Do you want clicks? Do you like, what is the purpose of the ad? And uh, 
it will funnel your advertising to people who do that thing. And I learned that engagement, like at one point I had like a bunch of like elderly people seeing my posts in Eastern Europe because Facebook knew that those people like to like things on Facebook. I'm sure a lot of wonderful grandmas right. enjoyed seeing my pot people advertisement about creatures and it got a lot of likes, but I was like, I don't know if this is really what I wanted, you know, but they delivered, they were likes, they were, it was engagement, but it wasn't specific enough for my audience. So that's time to adjust, you know? So what I wish it did do, I wish you could target uh, people that belong to certain Facebook groups. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Because sometimes you like it, so I can do D and D. That's pretty easy. Traveler shows up, but there's other role playing games that don't, and I'm not sure how it figures out who is the D and D person, who's a traveler. I mean, it, it seems like I I know people self identify in different ways or can, but I'd be much more interested in targeting and say targeting specific people that belong to certain groups. That would be very, very beneficial. So if I'm doing a a traveler supplement or using Cephas engine, I can you know, target multiple traveler groups. Um, but, and I, and I, but I think it's also, it's, you know, it goes to show some ads do better for engagement. Like Scoundrels of Brixton probably was not my, of my more recent Kickstarters was not my more, it was not, it wasn't very successful. I mean, it did fine, but it was break even, but I had way more um, engagement with people commenting on the posts, sharing the posts, Commenting on the posts, uh, it, it, it was by far much more people engaged that were engaging than than anything else I've done with those Facebook ads. But I don't know why. I may just be, I don't know why. Yeah, and I, I wish there was a button like, do that again, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Even if you copy the same thing, it just it's not doing the same thing. Like, it's hard to have like a set that you can just rely on. But that's why I'm, I'm sure I do know that there are experts and companies you could hire to do it. Yes, but, you can. Um, I think for a zine, like I, I have a $12 zine on uh, Kickstarter. I don't know if I it would be the smartest thing for me to pay thousands of dollars for a company to tinker with ads. But if I ever do like a, a bigger book, it might actually make sense because would be also lovely not to have to do it because I don't really love doing Facebook ads personally. Yeah, it'd be nice if. Yeah, I agree. And and you just gotta have a project that would justify that. And that's hard, but um, but I guess the thing is, if you you've got fifteen hundred dollars, uh, almost fifteen hundred dollars, not quite, but fourteen hundred dollars. It's only in two days. You've only had one other Kickstarter. You're not using any system. You're not using any uh, existing RPG system that people can tie into. So you're not using Dungeon Crawl Classics. You're not using Fate Accelerated or whatever. You, so that's pretty stinking impressive to to reach that level. But I think your your uh, your page, or at least as far as that graphic, is pretty pretty uh, pretty evocative. That's pretty spot on for. 
I think seventies DC, uh, the witching hour kind of comic book, uh, feel. Yeah. So I, the art, I, uh, I'm friends with a really incredible, uh, comic book artist. Uh, he lives in Italy. His name is, uh, uh, Michael Malatini and he is, probably one of the best artists I ever got a chance to work with. And he was really kind to uh, take on this project and he's very excited for it. And he, he created some truly stunning artwork. So I'm like, I learned, this is a trick I learned from my uh, years doing comics. If you get really good art, it helps you feel good, genuinely good about paddling your book like right i can always say like no 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 like uh, yeah sure the the writing might not like it's hard to say that your writing is spot on you know but if you get it like the very least you get this really stunning art and that really makes it easier to recommend your book you know well i think the thing too is that that cover sells exactly i mean you got pod people and you got a a a a pod organic fleshy looking gross looking uh yes. hanging from the scene of an attic and the guy going up and discovering a duplicate of himself as he's shining a light into this pod. So I mean, you know, I think you've you've as far as everything that you've communicated, you know exactly what's going on with this. You, you may not know you. if if you if it's you're gonna be a pod person or not a pod person. But you know very specifically, this is this is this is invasion of the body snatchers. Uh, this is going to be uh, a certain amount of emotional uh, ickiness. Uh, so I think you've you, it's very spot on. Thank you so much. I, I I couldn't be happier with the cover art. It's really no, it's like it's like it, it just it it just fits so well. And I think that, you know, and it's just it, you can get people that are great. You can get all sorts of great artists, but it's like when you go to look at them, it's like, but they're not exactly producing what I'm looking for, and uh, and that's sometimes you can do that. But like I say, this is uh, is definitely well on. You're also selling uh, the original art, so not only that, but you actually have physical copies of the art. Yes, and that I just posted that option because we just crossed the first stretch goal, so that's pretty new. I. Uh to the campaign itself too. But yes, we, Michael was really generous and he offered the original art to be part of the campaign. And I don't know if you ever, like, I don't know if you have like original comic book art or anything like that around the house, but they are really stunning to look at in per Like you can frame it, put it on the wall. It's a, it's a, I'm not the one who, fight technology but there, there's something being lost here when the audit, majority of artists move to digital art because just having that physical page in front of you is just really something that you can't replicate you know well we've also noticed with i think it was i got the i got some digital they're digital but they're scans of old red sonya comic books and um but the interesting thing about these old comics is like there's mistakes and then they would do white out. I mean, it's like 
there's a humanity to this. Like you're not seeing the, when you see the finished product, it's not what you saw in the comic book, but you're actually just seeing that. Yeah. It's there. This wasn't perfect. They decided to change. Apparently tried to change the, the words in here because the dialogue wouldn't work, whatever. It's like, you know, there seems to be an underlying story behind just, it's just a picture. It's like, you know, it is, it is something that was, you know, carved imperfectly and shaped until it became what it was. And the shock with comics, especially when you, when I first saw that the lettering was literally somebody hand writing the, the word, the yeah. words onto the page and they look so uniform. And there's actually like, it's, it's almost like a typeface. You can learn how to hand letter, but when you see how precise all the lettering is, I was like, I, I don't know how, how much do you have to pay a person to get so good at this thing? Like it's just so stunning. Well, back in the day, uh, I used to, I've, I've taken some drafting classes and um, there was rules about how you were supposed to to write your numbers and your letters. And it's very specific. And I was, my handwriting is never good, but years later, I can look at somebody who, who's, who, has, who, has, who prints and tell that they're a draftsman. There's oh, a, wow. a quality. It, it's probably not unlike with the comic book artist. You just look at that and you're like, there's the way the letters are formed, the numbers are formed, and you can tell those people were very good at lettering, and that's part of them now. And uh, it, it's it's pretty amazing when you see that the handwriting. You don't see it as much anymore because nobody, nobody, nobody in the real world actually goes through that anymore. <laughs> I uh, speaking of handwriting for the. Uh, Kickstarter I did before this one, my prior project was called The Conduit, and it was a journaling game about uh, receiving telepathic messages, and it went through a 29-day moon cycle, and every day you got a prompt that sort of let you figure out where these messages come from. It was part religious stuff, but it was mostly science fiction, a little bit inspired by these like UFO cults and mediums who talk to dinosaurs at the center of the earth, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. But almost as like a, a, and the goal of the game was if you followed it, at the end you would have a journal that was in-world and it would read as a piece of fiction. Like if you found the journal of somebody who was going through this like science fiction spiritual journey and as like a crazy uh, reward, I put like for like $450, I will handwrite the rule book in the style of the game for like one person, whoever buys it. And on the 11th hour of my campaign, somebody bought it, which I, I didn't think anybody would. But by then my scene ballooned into like this 80 page game because I got carried away and I had to handwrite an entire book. And 
I literally got like a hand injury. I had to go to the doctor like a, a month later because my hand would like cramp up in the morning. And it was like, I had the weirdest injury. You're not going to believe it. I hand wrote a book in a week, you know? Right. It's kind of funny. You got more than $400 worth of medical bills. <laughs> I, luckily not, but I, I, it did occur to me too that probably, yeah. I'm still the book actually turned out really beautiful, so I'm, I'm happy it exists. Hopefully, whoever got it enjoys it. I, it hasn't showed up on eBay yet, so hopefully they do like it. I would like to do a zine. Um, the problem is with somebody that discussing. I can't remember if I discuss it on the podcast or I talk it with people because you and I are talking. It'd be no different when you and I were at a convention talking, but. I would love to do a, a zine, but actually go back to the old school and have it typed. Oh, this would be fun. But I can't. I'm not going to be the one to type it. It's like <laughs> it would take me way too long because I I typed back in the day and I wasn't good, and so uh, it's like I I almost feel like it's it's sort of this is not a real idea. So I, humor me for a second, but like. You almost want to like sell, this doesn't exist, so I'm just completely making this thing up, like some sort of hardware, it would type it up for each person instead of printing, like have a typewriter, just sort of, like it should be custom typed for each person who buys it. I'm sure there's like some kind of hardware somebody could make. That would be kind of neat. Well, if, tied up. if you could find, so the, the, so the problem is for, for if I were to do it, let's say I was to do a zine, I would probably would have to find a font that would match whatever I was going to use for the typewriter. I'd have to lay it all out to know how it's going to work out. And then I would have to then go back and have somebody type it. Um, because it's, it's, you know, even if it's just pieces of it, because it's it's got to still fit. So, but I think if if all you're doing is writing a lot of text, you could hire somebody who probably can type very fast. Um, and there are probably people out there that would would use a typewriter, and it probably wouldn't be that expensive. I definitely, I mean, it's a profession to be a fast typist. It's still something they teach in schools. I think still. So I'm sure somebody's like, oh, yeah, but, I can do it. But not everybody can type on a typewriter. Because, That's true. And it depends on the – so did you ever use a typewriter? Uh, not in any real way. Just like I, I think related uh, here and there. But I, I, I think I typed up one short story when I was 12 – like in yeah. a friend's house, so you're, you're but like, it's really difficult, actually. Yeah, so you go do the typing, and you know, if you make a mistake, you can correct it, but it's either white out or they got special tape that you can do. But you get, but as you get to the end of the line, you hear a bell ring, and you know you only have so many characters, and you're done. And at that moment, you got to figure if you're going to hyphenate or not hyphenate. If you're going to hyphenate, where are you going to hyphenate? You have to do it now, yeah. right? Like, yeah, it's exactly. Not to hyphenate, like. <laughs> And so there's, I mean, you start thinking along those lines, uh, it's, it's, you know, not everybody can just, it's not the same anymore. And so whoever you'd have doing that, and, and I think whoever you have doing it, you'd also want them to make mistakes, not, not necessarily knowingly, but 
part of the charm is organically things are not uniform and perfect, right? Oh, yeah, you wanted to have that handmade feel to it. And you reminded me of the whiteout. I, I do, that just kind of triggered a memory. Another way to correct it, you go back and just hit the correct letter or on top of the bad one <laughs> yeah. a couple of times yeah. in the hopes it builds up enough to be like... Yes, I can make that, that, yeah, I can make that five into an eight. <laughs> exactly. You just try hard enough, long enough, it will happen. <laughs> Yeah, so I think there's some opportunities there. So uh, maybe, uh, maybe it'll be a typewritten one. Uh, and you can pay somebody to do the typewriting. That way you save your hands and your sanity. So in your – and this is, just, this is a really fun, exciting idea, actually. But in, in your mind, uh, would it be typewritten to eliminate something that would be made in the – like, would it be just a, a callback to the arrow when things had to be typed? Or would it tie into the actual story of the zine or the it, the lore? So what I've so actually neither. Um, okay, so it goes back to I've done digital photography, but I've never done film photography. So, and I think there's something lost by not have actually having film photography experience. Likewise, I've done layout using. Um, uh, InDesign and uh, Affinity Publisher. But what I have not done is cut and glued and taped stuff to a page. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I really want to do that, whatever that means. I love that. But I don't know what I'll do it with. I just know I want to do it. And I will do it one day, but I don't know what it's going to be. I, this, I actually really relate to what you're saying because I always have like a creative like wish list or bucket list, things I would love to do. And one day you will find a, a, an idea that just sparks and you're like, oh, this is the match I was waiting for. Uh, for example, I always wanted to redo the title sequence from John Carpenter's The Thing. When you watch the movie, it starts with the letters, The Thing, just burning onto the screen. It's a really stunning effect. And I used to watch all the making of documentaries on DVDs. And the production designer actually explains how they did that effect. And it was done on camera. They had a pexy glass or a piece of glass that they painted the negative of the letters. They had a light source, and between the two, they had a trash bag. And they set the trash bag on fire. And as the bag burned, it allowed the light to shine through. And on the other side of the glass, a camera could capture the light coming through the letters and making it come alive. And I always wanted to do it, and it never made sense to do it. And now I'm doing a pod people Kickstarter. So for the video, we redid the exact effect on camera with a friend for two hours for burning trash bags in his backyard at 10 p.m. when it was dark. And 
the effect honestly turned out just like the movie turned out great and i'm glad i waited long enough to do this to fall into a project where i never planned it but it finally i had my chance to try this thing i always wanted to so watch the video i have to look through that video again uh it's at the thing. very end i think for dramatic effects like I kept debating where to put it because that's kind of like the, the the good stuff, you know. But uh, the video is pretty brief, and it's almost just like a collagey art video that sort of puts you in the mood. I love I love making these video projects, and I pride myself in using the most primitive tools. I use this terrible clip art maker that comes with windows and it loses your files after five days so you have five days to make anything or you have to re-upload <laughs> each file individually a truly atrocious terrible way to do things but sometimes the simplicity really helps you just all i can do is cut and what can i make with this yeah, constraints are very are, are great to work with. You can be more creative with constraints than when you have uh, everything's just possible. I I agree. There's nothing worse than, and I think it, it sort of ties into designing role playing games too. That we all love the freedom of inhabiting this world, but there's nothing worse than sitting in front of a game like okay let's do something and the game tells you you can do anything right because that's like well that's nothing you're not giving me anything to start build on top of like you have to right. narrow like uh i do have a weekly skype call with my old high school role-playing game friends from hungary and we often talk about role-playing game design and we talk about like Shadow Run is a great idea that it's not not only the world, but it tells you who you are. It tells you what the direction of your story is, you know? And of course, it's true for most games. Most games are not just, here's the sandbox and just live in it. Right. It's, that's not enough. Right. I agree. I agree. Well, Laszlo, I think we're in the time-space continuum. I think we're approaching uh going on close to uh, two hours yet but uh <laughs> we're getting there for sure we are getting yeah. there. so uh so your kickstarter is currently going on and it will be happening for how many days 27 days to go you went for a full yes, month well, and pretty close. 29 days yes not wasn't correcting you i'm sorry but yeah that was the so it ends on the 13th of september and we have some limited edition uh, books there too which i i love making those as a publisher so if somebody wants to check those out it's probably sooner the better because they might be gone at one point yeah like someone just for the kickstarter so if you don't get on kickstarter you won't get them after that right oh for sure yeah so yeah and there's beautiful artwork so yeah check that out um yeah it's uh i'm very excited very excited to see where the, where this goes as long Thank you, and yeah, me too. <laughs> yes. Me too, but it was really wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been really a pleasure.
Oh, likewise. Likewise. Thanks for reaching out. I really appreciate you doing that. And uh, no, I agree. So anyway, you take care and, and until next time, Laszlo. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'll see you around.